If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's Best Hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What led two teenagers from China's Canton province to emigrate to California in the late 19th century? And what lives awaited them on America's west coast? Well, in today's episode, we'll hear from Hugo Wong, who's written a personal story tracing two of his ancestors, a story that has much to say about the history of Chinese migrant workers in North America and the lives that they forged. Hugo spoke with Ellen Evans. Hugo, thank you so much for joining me on the History Extra podcast to talk about your book, America's Lost Chinese. It's a story about two branches of your family, a story of emigration between China, between the United States of America and Mexico and beyond as well. Can you introduce us to the central figures at the start of your account? So the two central figures are one great-granduncle, uh, his name is uh, Funchuk, and uh, one great-grandfather whose name is uh, Hing. And they both left China or, you know, Canton province in the 1870s when they were age 12 and 14. And they first moved to, to the United States. They were among the first Chinese, actually, to, to move to the United States. They lived in the U.S. around 10 years each. And uh, they got, uh, because of exclusion, because of, of uh, racist laws, they were forced to leave the United States and uh, migrated to Mexico. And, uh, and they tried to settle in Mexico. They married with a Mexican woman. And actually, one of my ancestors founded a colony with the help of Chinese politicians and also uh, Mexican politicians. And it was a colony like no, no, no other before. It had a very uh, interesting features that no other Chinese settlement in America ever had. 
That's a great introduction. Thank you. And I wonder if we can go a bit backwards. I wonder if you can talk more broadly about the reasons why young men particularly were being sent by their families or emigrating to the United States for their families at this time. Yeah, so, so China in, in the 1850s was a, a very different place uh, from today. In the previous century, because of improved health and, and also a, a buoyant economy, the population of China had uh, tripled in the, in the previous 200 years where the land available for cultivation had only doubled, meaning that there was an immense uh, scarcity of land. And the internal migrations of people also made the problem worse. The bureaucracy, the Chinese bureaucracy, was deficient and corrupt, and the infrastructure was also stolen, was not taken care of, making the the season of floods and droughts even even worse. The place where my ancestors came from was uh, Canton province. And Canton had another problem, which is that most of the farmers were renting their land. They didn't own their land. And because of the land scarcity, rent, rents had become, had gone through the roof. And a lot of farmers just simply, you know, were living day to day, couldn't afford to leave. It was very difficult, difficult times for them. And people spoke at the time of the two swords on the farmers' shoulders. One was high rents and the other was high interest rates. And because of that land scarcity, because of also the polygamy that was prevalent at the time, there were a lot of violence as well. There's a lot of violence between uh, villages, between clans, between families. And so because of that violence, because of that poverty, a lot of Chinese were forced to uh, get rid of their children. Either if they're women, and if they're daughters, unfortunately, they usually sold them. And in China, there were a lot of Chinese cities actually had markets where people could buy children. And for young boys, what they usually did is they send them to other parts of China to work. Or in the case of King uh, and Funchuk, they send them abroad. And that's that's why my two ancestors uh, ended up in the United States. And arriving there, they obviously then were torn between these two worlds of their family obligation, but also dealing with this huge cultural shift that can't be understated. Yes, the point that's important to make is that China... In, in the end, end of the 19th century, hadn't changed in two, three hundred years. The life of a farmer in Canton at that time had, wasn't very different from the life of his ancestors, you know, in the 15th century. So by going to America, it was not only a voyage in distance, but also a voyage in time. So it was, it was a, an incredible uh, cultural shock. Uh, but it was a cultural shock for both sides. It was a culture shock for the Chinese arriving in America, but also for the ordinary Americans who had never uh, met a Chinese before. It was the first time in history that ordinary Americans and Chinese were meeting each other. So yes, it was, it was a cultural shock. Uh, the interesting thing to note is that the Chinese didn't move to the United States to settle. The Chinese moved to the United States to make money that was going to be sent to the families, and then they all wanted to go back to China. Chinese society is based on filial piety, is a society which is based on family clans. Chinese civilization can be pictured as a collection of family lineages. 85% of the population have the 100 most common surnames. It's a clan-based civilization founded on ancestors' worship. When people think about ancestors' worship, people think about having an altar in your home and, you know, with a, with a, with a tablet of your ancestor or today a picture of your ancestor. And yes, that's what ancestors' worship is today. But ancestors' worship goes beyond that. Ancestors' worship is really something that shaped the political and social system of China. For example, the emperors were considered like fathers and demanded loyalty from their subjects 
And in exchange, the subjects expected the emperor to be kind and fair to them. And that ancestor worship, that filial piety, was also obvious in the structures of the villages. All the villages in in China had a common surname. They all shared the same infrastructure. They all had, you know, schools and canals and temples in common. And because cultivation of rice requires uh, communal organizations, the whole villages were like family villages. And that was, that was the structure of Chinese society. So when, when those Chinese went abroad, they kept those, uh, those family links. For them, it was very, very important to keep that. And it's not because they're moving abroad that they're abandoning their families, not at all. The first thing they arrived when, when arriving abroad actually was setting up those um, native home organizations or guilds, uh, regrouping all the people coming from the same region. And all their lives, the Chinese would make sure that they kept their reputation pristine within those organizations, even if they were so far away from the villages. And those organizations also lent them money, provided them credit. And so in a way, it's like they had never left their family villages. So although they were abroad, their links with China that they maintained were still very, very strong. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Can you take us into the West Coast that they found then in this late 19th century? What kind of opportunities awaited them? What did they find themselves doing initially in this country? They arrived in California again as in, in the 18, 1870s, 1880s. Uh, California was an immigration country. Uh, so it was made, uh, most of the people were immigrant. California had just been annexed to the United States. It belonged to Mexico before. And most of the people were not only migrants from Europe or China, but, but also migrants from other parts of the United States. And everybody was dreaming of becoming rich quickly. And obviously it didn't happen. 
And a lot of people, you know, ended up disappointed because of that. When my ancestors arrived in 1875, I believe there was, there just uh, had been a, a, an economic crisis. So they arrived in the you know, United States that, that had had economic problems. Uh, the jobless rate, I believe, was uh, 30%. And they arrived at a time when the Chinese started to be excluded. One arrived in 1875 and the other one in 1880. And the U.S. Exclusion Act was passed by Congress in 1882. And what that act did was ban all Chinese immigration from the United States. It was the first time that a nation was singled out and was banned from immigrating to the U.S. Because of that legislation, the Chinese, in effect, became the first illegal immigrants uh, in America. And the U.S. became an, a nation of, of guardians. But nonetheless, they tried to work in the U.S. They were not expelled out of the U.S., I don't think so. But certainly, because of those laws, those laws made their lives more difficult. And one of them was very lucky, actually, Funchok, my first ancestors to arrive in the U.S. He was very fortunate in that he attended a missionary school in San Francisco. I think he was probably one of the first Chinese in the history to actually attend a Western school. And that gave him a unique perspective on the world and, and how things worked. And that, th that education actually would help him all his life. Uh, he didn't have that, that luck. He worked in a laundry shop. And then after that, he worked as a rail worker building the railroad. And again, they faced terrible exclusion, uh, especially he in, in those years. Funchog was a, was witness in San Francisco in 1877 of the first mass riots against the Chinese in the city which, uh, you know, he was, he was 14 years old at the time, so it was quite a shock for him to see that violence against his people. But nonetheless, they progressed, you know, they learned things, and uh, I think that experience gave him new perspectives, new dreams, uh, which they would use in, in Mexico 10 years later. Before we get on to that, obviously it's clear they faced immense challenges both in, in different ways. I wonder if we can linger a little more on this sentiment, this rising violence against Chinese people in America. What factors are driving that? Where is that coming from? Initially, actually, the Chinese were, were welcome. The first Chinese to arrive in the 1850s, they were welcome because the United States needed, needed those workers. Uh, however, because of the crisis, the sentiment against the Chinese turned negative. And with Americans not having enough, you know, jobs for themselves, they started, you know, to discriminate against the Chinese. The Chinese also were believed to be more efficient workers, more disciplined workers, and certainly cheaper. And that didn't go well with the, you know, with the white uh, working class. And so the, the working class started to have their own discourse on the Chinese. So they tried to justify, to explain why the Chinese were so, you know, efficient in the, in the work. And so they, they start saying, for example, that the Chinese were like robots. They were like machines like, or, or Chinese merchants were like, uh, you know, cunning and shrewd. And that, that helped them explain why the Chinese were, uh, you know, more hardworking than them. And that imagery of the Chinese actually hasn't changed in 250 years. I mean, people keep saying today that the Chinese are like, you know, machines and they don't have any ideals of, uh, you know, democracy or... Uh, so that's a similar discourse today that was heard, you know, 150 years ago. And for one of your ancestors, particularly, this violence did make itself felt, didn't it? I, I wonder if we can pick up on the story of Hing and the laundry and the violence he experienced. Yes. So when he arrived in San Francisco... His job, he worked in a, in, a, in a laundry. And first of all, it was a surprise for him because laundries didn't exist in China. There was no laundries in China. And San Francisco had more than 2,000 laundries. And so he worked there for three years. It was a very, very difficult job. Again, working like, you know, 16 hours a day, uh, shifts. And the only 
freedom he had, the little freedom he had, was when he actually left his shop and went to deliver laundry uh, to other parts in San Francisco. But those little trips that he made outside his laundry were also uh, also terrified him, because that's when he came in contact with uh, you know with with Westerners, with people of San Francisco. And I tell the story in the book where you know one one scene where he, he he's actually abused by some local thugs and they throw things at him and, and they abuse him. But yet he doesn't have any other choice that, than to endure those those sufferings because he needs to uh, repay the loans of, of his family. He needs to send money to his family. So he doesn't have any other choice than to endure that. And that was the lot of a lot of the migrants at, at the time. So if that's the situation in America that has obviously caused your ancestors to move, to emigrate to Mexico, what situation awaits them in 1890s Mexico? What, what's the situation there for many Chinese people emigrating? So Mexico, first of all, is, is, is a poorer country, obviously, than the United States. Wages are, are much lower. It's also a country which uh, has had, in 1880, when my ancestors uh, arrived in Mexico, it's a country that just had like pretty much 100 years of wars. At the beginning of the century, they had the War of Independence uh, with Spain. Then they had a conflict between conservatives and liberals that lasted for, for decades. Uh, then they had two wars, one war against the United States. Actually, Mexico lost more than half of its, uh, of its territory. Uh, so... Mexico was an exhausted country. It was also a very unequal country. 100% of the land was owned by only 2% of the population. And 90% of the Mexicans were considered poor. The wages were 1 15th of those in the United States. And the majority of Mexicans were working 16 hours shifts, barely surviving day to day. So that's the country my ancestors arrived at. It's a very unequal country, very similar in a, in a way to Canton province which uh, they just left. And the, the president of Mexico, Porfirio Diaz, has that policy that he wants to uh, obviously transform and make his country richer. And for that, he starts a massive uh, program of infrastructure work, building railroads and also uh, develop mining. And for that, he invites foreign capital to Mexico and also invites foreign workers. However, very few foreign workers want to come to Mexico because wages are too low. And so he fails at that. But he does manage to attract significant foreign capital. And President Diaz actually is very happy to welcome Chinese workers, uh, not only for its, uh, you know, for Mexican companies, but also for all those foreign companies that are now, you know, doing business in Mexico. So the Chinese at the time were called motores de sangre, which means blood engines. So President Diaz has this vision that, uh, you know, the Mexicans were uh, contribute to the economy of Mexico. And he's actually a mestizo, which means a mixed between a Spaniard and an Indian. However, he has a very poor uh, opinion of, of the Indians. He thinks that Mexico is a country full of resources, but that uh, Mexicans are not able to exploit them. So he's very happy to not only invite foreign capital, but foreign workers to, to help Mexico develop. And so when my, my ancestors arrive in Mexico, they, they suddenly feel welcome. And they're able to do a lot of things that they, were, they weren't able to do in, in the United States. Can you take us into a few, few more of those things, a few for the entrepreneurial activities they pick up? In the United States, they're banned from many things, uh, even before the U.S. Exclusion Act. In the, US, in the United States, they couldn't buy land. They were not able to testify against a white in court. Uh, they couldn't marry with, uh, with white women. And so that inhibited a lot of, uh, of the business activities in the United States. In Mexico, not everything was possible. They could buy land, they could marry with local women, 
they could actually go to court as well and fight fight against Mexicans. And so if initially a lot of the Chinese were invited to, to Mexico to work as workers, very quickly over the years, they became merchants. They opened their own businesses and they became merchants. And 30 years later, at the beginning of the, of the 20th century, large parts of northern Mexico had a lot of Chinese who had uh, monopolized the grocery trade. Every town of, in northern Mexico had a grocery store, and very likely that store is owned by a Chinese person. And they, you know, became quite wealthy. Uh, they became quite successful, something that were, they were not able to do in the United States. But because of that, of that success, unfortunately, that also generated a lot of resentment. A lot of Mexicans couldn't understand why those, you know, poor Chinese had just arrived and suddenly, you know, 10 years later, they were able to, you know, get wealthy. Uh, while themselves, they were still farmers, they were still workers, and they were not able to do that. One reason why they're able to do that is because uh, the Chinese benefited from guilds, from their transnational organizations, meaning that they could buy and source products from the United States and from China cheaply, which the Mexicans couldn't do. Also, through those organizations, they were able to get credit, uh, which the Mexican merchants were not able to access. And finally, they bought new techniques also to Mexico, new selling techniques. Like, for example, they're giving, you know, free samples or free products to, to the customers, the good customers. Or they brought into Mexico itinerant trade. Itinerant trade had happened in, in China for centuries, but it was unknown in Mexico. Uh, so Chinese started uh, knocking at the Mexican people's doors and going from home to home selling their, their products. And uh, one of my ancestors, actually, Hing, uh, you know, started his business that way you know, knocking at uh, people's doors. Yes, he spots an opportunity, doesn't he, for Chinese art and things like this. Can we linger a little more on his story? What, how does he get started? How does he progress in this way? Yeah, so when, when Hing arrives in Mexico, he actually works many years for the railroad. Uh, he's very destitute, he doesn't have any money. And working in the railroad allows him to build some capital. And after working for the railroad a few years, uh, he decides to become a merchant, like uh, many of his other Chinese friends have become. So he starts uh, selling Chinese merchandises, but he soon realizes that there is an interest in Mexico for Chinese art, and he decides to specialize in, in that. And he, because of the railroad he has just helped build, it becomes quite easy for him to source uh, Chinese products from San Francisco Chinatown, which he gets you know through the railroad. And like all his Chinese friends, the way he starts his business is knocking at people's doors and presenting them his products. But over the years, as he, as he becomes more successful, he starts having physical stores as well. And later, when, you know, as even his children grow, uh, each of his male child will manage his different stores, uh, you know, throughout Mexico. And at the beginning, he sources himself from San Francisco, from the San Francisco merchants. But uh, later, he asks his brother in China to source for him. And so he has a brother in China creating a company and sourcing products for him in Mexico, uh, meaning that both the family in China and the family in Mexico are getting wealthy that way. So there's clearly immense opportunity, which uh, Hing takes advantage of, and also your other ancestor, Funchuk. But as you've already alluded to, there are rising sentiments again in Mexico that mean trouble for your family. I wanted to ask about the, the period of violence, um, particularly focusing on Torreon. Would you be happy talking us through that? So Torreon was quite a, quite a unique place in, in Mexico. It was, a, it was a boom town. Its population went from 2,000, by the time my ancestors arrived in Mexico, to 40,000 uh, 20 years later. 
And it was also a foreign town. A lot of foreigners had actually uh, moved and invested in Torreon. It was a mixed population. So it, there were 1,500 Americans in Torreon. There are 700 Chinese. And there are also many Europeans. And like California before, it was a city of migrants. Everybody was a migrant. And the majority of the population were workers, workers working for those foreigners, either American or European or Mexican capitalists. And because of the economic growth uh, came also land speculation, which uh, my Chinese ancestors participated in. So everybody, every foreigner was buying land. Uh, the prices of real estate were going up. The rents were going up. And the Chinese uh, dominated a lot of the economic activity in Torreon. As, as I mentioned earlier, they dominated the grocery trade in Torreon. Uh, they dominated the food supply. Fun Chu, when he arrived in Torreon, he realized there's not enough vegetables. And so he created his own farms in Torreon. And see, so he owned all the farms around Torreon. And also a characteristic of, of the businesses of the Chinese in Torreon was that they were all employing only Chinese people. The American and European enterprises in, the, in Mexico were employing Mexicans, but the Chinese were employing only Chinese people, which created resentment. And also, unlike other settlements in, in North America, Torreon was a capitalistic enterprise. So it, it, was, it was a place where Chinese entrepreneurs invested, but didn't necessarily live in Torreon. For example, Fung Chok didn't have his family in Torreon. His family was somewhere else in North of Mexico. And a lot of the Chinese investors in Torreon didn't have their families there, didn't have mixed marriages. And with the crisis in uh, 1907, uh, that created quite an explosive mix for Torreon because there were a lot of angry, uh, unhappy uh, Mexican workers. There were a lot of wealthy foreigners. So when the Mexican Revolution arrived, unfortunately, there was a lot of violence in Torreon. And in 1911, the Torreon massacre happened. It was a horrific event. In two days, a mob of 4,000 people uh, massacred uh, 303 Chinese and five Japanese. And the people responsible for that killing were never, China never got any repara reparation for, for that. And also the people responsible, like the, the military, there was a lot of soldiers participated in that. The military leaders were never judged or were never criticized for that massacre. And then following Torreon, many more massacres happened throughout Mexico. More than 1,000 people actually were killed throughout the country during those uh, 10 years of the revolution. So it's a staggering violence. What does this mean for the two branches of your family, for Funchuk and for Hing? So uh, it's actually different outcomes. Uh, for Funchuk, Funchuk was a capitalist. So he had uh, vast uh, businesses. He was in hotels. He was in farms. So he was competing directly with the Mexicans. Hing, on the contrary, was selling Chinese art. So he wasn't competing with the Mexicans. So the consequences of Torreon and the, and the revolution were much harder for Funchuk than they were for Hing. Hing, after the revolution passed, uh, you know, people continued uh, uh, buying Chinese art to flatter their ego. So Hing didn't suffer so much. I mean, his business didn't suffer so much, so much from, the, from the revolution. Funchuk's business, you know, he actually lost a lot of money during the revolution. And I think many of his business never recovered after the revolution. And in the 20 years after the revolution, he kept, because he was competing with the Mexicans, uh, his businesses kept suffering because Mexicans didn't want Chinese to compete against them. And so even in the 1930s, he continued uh, losing business to the Mexicans. He continued being robbed and 
And he actually, I don't think he ever recovered uh, his investment in Torreon. Like all the land he had bought, the hotels, the Chinese colony had a bank as well. A lot of that was lost during the revolution and never recovered. Okay, so so perhaps we'll leave their story to be discovered in your book. I want to pick up on, you mentioned that both Funchuk and, and Hing marry Mexican women. They obviously have a lot of children between them. And there is a really interesting question in your book of then what it means to be a person who is of mixed Chinese and Mexican descent of heritage, and particularly when some of those children emigrate to China. I wonder if we can look at it particularly through the lens of Concha and her story. Yeah, so so my grandmother was a mixed Chinese-Mexican. So her father, Hing, was Chinese and her mother was Mexican. And well, I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, many, many Chinese married Mexican women, but it wasn't an easy process. The story that is told in my family is that the way Hing met Concha is very peculiar. And Hing actually had to buy his wife, from a relative. Uh, because in those days, nobody wanted to marry uh, Chinese people, even if they were wealthy like him. Or I mean, he, at, that, at that point, he had become Mexican, but that didn't matter. Mexicans didn't want to marry Chinese people. So his story was, was a bit special. Like he, he actually bought his wife. And that was very, something very common in China at the time. So every, a lot of marriages were just arrangements between families. He didn't see anything unusual in that. And he uh, remained married and he remained loyal to his wife all his life. And they had 10 children, including my grandmother, Concha. And in Mexico, in the, uh, you know, growing in the 1910s, in the 1920s in Mexico was very difficult for a, a mixed child. The anti-Chinese sentiment was very, very strong. And my, all my uncles and, and my grandmother suffered immensely from exclusion in those years. And uh, in my book, there's a f- photograph, actually, a photograph taken of the family just before the revolution and another one taken during the revolution. And it's striking to see the, the faces of, of the children. <laughs> From before the revolution, they all, all the family, they all seem happy and that there's a very happy mixed family. And then eight years later, the same photograph shows, you know, angry children. They're not scared, they're angry. They don't understand what's happening to them. And suddenly, you know, my grandmother has, has, a, has an angry expression on her face. But nonetheless, as any, any violence, I mean, the, the violence goes away with, with, with the years. And she still manages to make quite a few friends in Mexico. And I found a lot of letters from and photographs, uh, you know, of my grandmother with Mexican friends. But she was not able to marry Mexican people. At the time, anyone, especially in the wealthy class, any Mexican would never marry a Chinese woman. And so my grandmother was, had not, didn't have any choice but to marry a Chinese. And so that, that's when those two branches of my family united. My grandmother married someone from, like a nephew of Funchuk that was, uh, you know, just arrived from China. And then, because of the violence in Mexico, because of the, because of the racism, they both left and immigrated to China, where, where my mother was born. Can you speak a little more to then how she found the experience of being in China with that mixed heritage as well? First of all, like all, all her youth in Mexico, she didn't have any idea what it meant to be Chinese. Because her father, Hing, because of the exclusion had decided that it was better for, for his children to forget that they were Chinese. And so he forbid them to speak Chinese. Obviously, her father was selling Chinese objects. I mean, she knew about that. But she, didn't, she couldn't speak Chinese, and she didn't have a clue what, what Chinese was about. So she married with my, with my grandfather, you know, a Chinese gentleman. And they moved to China. They arrived in Shanghai in uh, 1932, 1933. And for her, it was, it was magical. I mean, Shanghai was, like Torreon before, was also a migrant city. And so she immediately felt at home. 
because in Mexico, when you were of mixed race, you were excluded. You were, it was not normal. You were like almost like an alien, right? But Shanghai was, was a city of fusion. And so there were a lot of Eurasians like her. And I think for the first time in her life, she felt like she belonged somewhere. I mean, she had found a home. And she and, and, and my grandfather had like, uh, you know, very, very happy years in Shanghai. And I could, I could see that from the pictures they left. And my grandmother was determined to, in a way, become Chinese, which, you know, she wasn't at all. And so she started taking Chinese lessons. She started learning how to cook Chinese. And also she was very proud. I mean, she was very proud of her mixed heritage, which had not been the case before. So these are these are wonderful moments of, of a very personal history that signal, obviously, a very broad story of emigration at this time. You've covered 100 years of history in your book of your family history. I wonder if I can end by finally asking you about your own experience of delving into this history. What was that experience like for you? The reason I wrote this book is because a lot of, of books in, uh, about China today, nonfiction books at least, are written by either scholars or economists or diplomats. And all, most of them deal with the economy and, and politics. And I couldn't find that many Chinese books that had a human narrative. And I knew that I had that, that story of my family. And, you know, I, I thought it would be a good idea to write a nonfiction China book, but with a human narrative. And that's the reason I, I wrote this book. And also I wanted to, to share that history. It's a, it's a history of the relationship between China, the United States, and Me Mexico and China. And that, that relationship is still very important today. And that's the reason why I wrote this book. I wanted people to understand that history and, and reflect on it as well. Because it's, I mean, obviously the, those relationships are still very important today. And are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with as they go into this story? I think the only thing I wanted to, I would like to say is that is a history that has two sides. One side is violence and the other side is um, exchange. And the story of my family is, is the result of that. Starting from the 17th century, every place where there's been mass migration of Chinese, there's also been mass massacres. And that's, that's actually a scary thing to say, but it started in the Philippines in the 17th century. Then it happened in Peru and other countries in, in South America. Then it happened in America, in the United States. Then it happened in Mexico. And then more recently in the 20th century, it happened in Southeast Asia, in, in places like Malaysia or, or Indonesia. So everywhere there has been mass migration of Chinese, those have been followed by massacres and riots. And obviously there are lots of explanations for that, but it's a point worth making. The other side of the coin is obviously integration and fusion between China and the West. And that also is a beautiful story. In a way, it's even a more powerful story than the story of those massacres. And one thing I want to remind listeners, for example, is that the founder of modern China, the founder of, of the Chinese Republic, is uh, Sun Yat-sen. And Sun Yat-sen himself was an overseas Chinese. He had studied in, in the West. He, has, he was a Western doctor. And a lot of the politicians in China at the start of the century, at the start of the 20th century, were all trained and educated in the West. And so it's, for me, it's, as, as, as writing this book, it's a very important message to tell people is that it's not only violence, but it's also exchange. And I hope that exchange is going to continue uh, in the future between China and the West. That was Hugo Wong. America's Lost Chinese, The Rise and Fall of a Migrant Family Dream is published by Hearst and is out now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.